Hey everybody, I am joined tonight by one of the most interesting people I've ever met. You want to tell us your name, where you're from, sir? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Mamoun Bahani, and I'm from Damascus. Where in, uh, where in Damascus did you grow up? What was the area like? I grew up in, in, in I say, the, the mountain neighborhood of Damascus. Uh, it's in, it's in north, northwestern Damascus. It's a fairly recent area. Growing up, I think growing up in Syria was fun. I was really exposed to some very nice particularities of Syrian culture. Even the seasons in Syria, the history of Syria experience, it was, it, it really helped me form a connection to the land and the people. But there are reasons I have to call it home. I still think of it as home. I haven't been there in eight years. What was your childhood like? Were your, were your parents like strict or were they, did they, did they let you do what they, what you wanted? To a certain extent, um, I, Thankfully, I had a family around. They they really supported me in everything I wanted to do. Uh, they were strict. They were they're, they're conservative Muslims, and to the best degree I can, I tried to live a a, a lifestyle that's compliant with the way the way they wanted. I love them to death. But you know, I guess like any childhood, they were strict, and as I grew as I grew up, they become less strict, and you know, you eventually become an adult and you're on your own. But I think uh, you know, I had the appropriate appropriate amount of oversight. Uh, when it comes to my parents, I guess. So they like kept you out of trouble, but you were still able to live your life. Yeah, no. Well, you, you know, there were appropriate restrictions. You know, like what was what a sixteen-year-old can and can't do. Uh, I had a curfew. Uh, I had an allowance. Uh, I, I had to help out the household. I had to, I had to do errands. You know, go shop for groceries. Uh, pick up my sister from here or there. And they disciplined me, and I and I was I, I I wasn't I wasn't the most obedient or best of children. I was a troublemaker, and they disciplined <laughs> they they disciplined me when when it when it was due. I see, man, man. What was it like running errands in Damascus? Were you going to like like old souks, or were these like new kind of modern supermarkets? So it was it was actually a mixture. Of, okay, you know, my mom would give me a list of groceries to go to go and buy. And sometimes it would be, I'd be buying vegetables and fruits from peddlers, you know, like old flat peddlers that go away, go around with their carts. To the extent even horse-drawn or like mule-drawn carts, you, you know, you find them around the Damascus. Uh, you, you get vegetables. Uh, traditional, traditional shops like like I remember butchers. But here's the fun thing about about you know, I guess a lot of professions in Syria. It's it's not it's very common to have like a a second a second like profession or you know way to make income. I, I guess around the world, same, same thing goes for the United States. And we had this one butcher. Uh, he was a butcher, so you know you go to his shop. But he all he was on the side. He was also a currency ex- exchange guy. So he would you know you go with your Syrian currency and you wanted like euros or or US dollars, and he'd exchange it to you in his butcher shop. And I remember his the notes he'd give you the foreign currency. It would also always smell like meat. <laughs> I thought it was funny too. Wow, what what was education like in, in your in the country you were born in? Um, so Syria, Syria has a, a a very powerful, um, I guess, indoctrination structure and education. There were state mandated curriculums. You know, it's everything. Everything had to be approved by the government. Uh, sorry, everything was published by the government, not to be approved by the government. Everything was published by the government. Wow. And you were taught history the way they wanted to. Uh, Syria was controlled by the Ba'ath Party and a an Arab Nationalist Party, and you know. They definitely highlighted things that would reflect nicely on their ideology. Syria, Syria, despite you know some people call it, call it the secular state, uh, it, it's not. It's not in any traditional sense. Uh, we had state state mandated religious classes, oh, and only there are two two recognized religions, by the way, Main, mainstream Sunni Orthodox Islam. So there was there that was taught in schools to to Muslim students, and uh, and. There was a Christian teachings. I don't know if, if they if they need, if they lean to any any particular branch of Christianity in Syria. But and students, I remember like when there was like there was a religious class. I went to a private school that was mixed. Um, you know, the Muslim students would stay in class. The Christian students would go to their own class for academic purposes, like such as applying for Syrian universities and stuff. You just had to pass your religious class, but they wouldn't t- take them take them into 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 account with the score. Not so as long as you pass the, the course, the, the course you're good. But uh, you know, if if you're trying to apply for medical school or not, they don't take into account your religious class. 
That's interesting. It sounds like uh, we both went to private religious schools. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Given that it's the fact that it's such an old city, you could, um, if you want, to, if you wanted to hang out with your friends, you could go to like restaurants or 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 spas or uh, clubs uh, and bars in like some real like some of the oldest neighborhoods in the world. The Omeyyad Mosque, for example, used to be a pagan temple. Was converted into, uh, uh, I think, a church, and then was converted converted into a to a mosque. Uh, lots of, um, I guess, notable historical figures are buried in Damascus. A lot of published history on it. Um, it's got it's got great weather, to be honest. the The winter is never super bad. It it it's, it gets cold enough that it snows. But it's not the kind of snow. It's not the kind of snow you start. You, you get. You start getting sick of the summers. Given the fact, it's kind of. Oh, um, and this will help explain a lot about Damascus. Damascus is an oasis. It's an oasis in an arid area, on a hilly desert area. So that's how it became like one of the oldest cities in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fed off by all these all the all the melting waters from from the, the, the peaks around it, the mountains around it, the the, the Lebanese. The Lebanese and anti the, the Lebanon anti Lebanon mountains, the uh, Jabal al Sheikh in, in the south, you know. So they, they all, they all, they're all mountains. You know, they, it snows there. Uh, that snow melts and feeds into an oasis that surrounds Damascus, and and, and we call this, this oasis the Huta. Hmm. Is that G H O U T A in English? Yes. Yes. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, and it's the Huta in, in Syria is the modern conflict right now has been, you know, it, it's been um, an area that's that has that has made headlines most notably the 2013 chemical weapon strike. Yeah, uh, uh, on eastern Huta. Yeah, that was horrible. Mm-hmm. On on a lighter note, I mean, Damascus has so much cool history. Mm-hmm, yeah. I, I've heard some people say it's the oldest city in the world. Um, I've seen people contest that, but. It, it's definitely up there. It goes all the way back to the to the cradle of civilization. Definitely. Um, so I don't know about the oldest city in the world. I think it's it's people will will, will say it's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Um, and you know, here's here's something that made that was like in terms of of the topo- the, the the topography of Damascus. It was. It was on the foothills. So the oasis was on the foothill, on the foothill of this mountain called Mount, Mount Qasum. And you know, if you always wanted to get a sense of where you are in the city, you, uh, where you should go, you look towards the mountain, and you'd know that mountain was north of the city. And you could tell, okay, so this is where I am relative to the mountain, and if I need to go to this area, I just move that way or that or this way. So, so Damascus, you said it's an oasis. So it's not like is it like in a desert or what? What's the um, trying to find the word. Uh, I would, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I would call I would call the areas around Damascus a desert. So it's an oasis in a desert. Okay. It's, but but I guess something that sets it a, a bit apart from a desert is it's a it's a mountainous desert. Mm. There's elevation. Damascus is about is about seven hundred to eight hundred meters above sea level. Have you uh, traveled through the American Southwest by chance? I did, I did, yes, it, it does remind you. It reminds me a lot of, actually, I, I'll say Idaho. Oh, okay. I, Idaho, the U.S. Southwest is, is it's, it's a pretty unique place, uh, but Idaho, Idaho is the first thing that came to mind. I see. You mentioned earlier the regime and the fact that the Constitution, in, in your words, it doesn't mean that much. Like, can, can you explain why that why that's the case? Yeah. You know, in terms of how seriously uh, Syrian officials, uh, agents, judges, lawyers, how seriously they take the law, I, I, I can tell you, I, I don't think the law matters much in Syria. There are certain certain aspects of the law, certain expectations, but generally for a waste of income paper. A lot of a lot of intelligence agencies operate outside the law. Uh, they bully judges to to make decisions, to influence their decisions. If you're, uh, you know, if you're accused of certain crimes, you have very little recourse to a judicial, to a to due process, uh, to to the help of, of an attorney. Trials, if if you are granted a trial, they're very restrictive, and uh, I, I would I would say they're far from fair. 
And what what are the conditions like for people who get detained by the government? As far as I know, it's not consistent. You know, there's luck in it, but and, it, and also it depends on the circumstances of the, the, the detainment. So is it someone that was caught off, like that was protesting in the streets, and he was arrested, and he was like detained during during that protest, or is it someone that had a uh, you know a, a supposed warrant go out calling for his arrest? So it, it, it depends. But in the in the worst case circumstance, in the worst case circumstance, you would be um, you would be detained by I want to say thugs. You know, it's not like you would see a policeman in uniform. Thugs, um, in, probably in a van, they throw you in, and whatever. And by the time you, the whole the whole trip they take you to the detainment center, they probably have you blindfolded. They're definitely they're definitely beating you up and calling you names. Uh, cussing you, cussing at you and your family. But it, you're, you're, you're blindfolded. You're, you're, you're probably, you're probably tied up in some way. And you probably arrive at, I don't know, some, some first screening center. But you probably, uh, I heard, I heard some, some people tell me that there's, there's something called the welcoming party. And the welcoming party was, you know, like a, a hazing ritual. People were, especially like, uh, especially, uh, it was just a breakdown of the human human psyche. They would torture you really bad, and I guess that way that was how they would build up, make you try to cooperate and interrogate you, and even make, I don't know, make uh, uh, false false uh, confessions. I've heard of issues like this. Now, I've also heard of people that would say that they were arrested for crimes that were not political in nature. I, I know this one guy, seventeen years old. Uh, was driving a car on license and crashed it. And he was held in a cell. He wasn't tortured. And, you know, it, they had, they had the minimum, you know, they gave him like a, I won't call it a mattress, like a, like a sort of like sponge, sponge, uh, it's like sponge mattress, I'll say. I'll call it a sponge mattress to sleep on. His family could bribe the officer's money so they could like get him something better instead of feeding him boiled potatoes to start getting him chicken, for example. They get him, they got him a better mattress. So, you know, I, I guess if it depends on the crime you're accused of, too. Uh, is it political in nature or not? And how serious is it? Is the law enforced equally, or can you, like, get off more easily if you have connections to somebody with power? Definitely. definitely. Did something get registered in, in, in the legal process? Was the, was the legal process in sheet? Because, you know, they can hold, there's a lot that can be done before they have to start a, a, any, any supposed process against you, like due process. And that gave you a lot of time to resolve things back then, uh, before, before something official started. Because the, the very fact that they can hold you without trial for so long meant, meant that, you know, their legislative, legal processes were, were, were not taken seriously. So, and I guess you could, Depends that you could call up some people, I bribe some people, and you could probably get something out of it. And uh, I, I do know of people, for example, who would get, you know, like preemptive, preemptive warnings, like, "Hey, we we heard that you discussed this issue with this person, and we know about it, and this should be your warning." I've I've seen that happen. So there are like informants just hanging around, listening to what people are saying. Yeah, the walls are very sweet. We have it. I remember discussing politics in Syria. Every time we discussed politics in Syria, we would put our phones away. We would we would disconnect the batteries, remove the batteries from the phone, put the phones away, and then discuss politics. Damn. We had a crime. There was there was a, a law that said you know anything that hurts national morale or incites sectarian or racial tensions, we'd have we we'd have things like that. Which is ironic, considering that the government does all of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How would you describe the Syrian government? I know that when you were born, um, Hafez al-Assad was the quote-unquote president. Can you give us a, a rundown of, like, just real quick of how the Syrian government works and who Hafez al-Assad was? I have started off with, let's say, the design of the Syrian government. Uh, Syria, prior, prior to how it's, it was right now, was run for more than 400 years by the, by the Ottoman Empire. So... They had their own system. You know, once the Ottoman Empire uh, collapsed, it was the French who came and designed our way of uh, our, our political system. They and they essentially uh, re- replicated their, their their system of government with us. So they brought in a parliamentary system, a well, a, a, a split French 
French uh, a split presidential prime minister parliamentary system. So unlike you know unlike let's say the, the United States where you have a pre only a president, um, or or the United Kingdom where you have only a prime minister, if we were to have both, so just like the French, um, it was they got they got I, I guess they got bureaucrats from that island. I think the island of Corsica. They were, they were the ones that designed the modern Syrian political system. And you know, for about 15 years after the French left, we had, we had somewhat of a, of a, of a democracy, very rocky. There were, there were plenty, plenty of coups. We had an army that we gave too many of our liberties to and that was, that was too powerful for a civil state. And it was, the, it was eventually the army that took over power. And this is how Hafez Assad came to power. He came in, he was like an Air Force pilot, and then after the, the Ba'ath coup of 1963, he was Minister of Defense. He was the Minister of Defense, and he uh, he's the one during 1967, like Syria had a devastating loss by Israel. He was the Minister of Defense, so I guess he was one of the people that, if there was going to be any liability or responsibility, he, he should have been there. But no, this guy he was able to do a coup in the 70s, and... The Assad dynasty has been running Syria ever since uh, 50, 50 years as of now. And in the in two thousand, Hafez al Assad passed away at a at a at an old age. Yeah, uh, he did. And his uh, son succeeded him. Yeah, uh, small point. Like before, before Assad senior passed away, he was grooming his other son Bassad to take over the presidency. This guy, this guy was. Uh, you know, and you can tell he was being groomed. He was an equestrian champion. He was he was always always photographed in his in his military uh, attire, uh, with his with his like uh, iconic Ray Bans. This guy, uh, there was no doubt about it. This guy was going to be serious next president. He died uh, in a car accident. Uh, I guess he was being driven to an airport in a, in a supercar. And uh, you know, I guess I guess like any any uh, spoiled uh, kid. He got him and his crew got probably arrogant, and uh, that's that's how his life ended. Um, Bashar by then was uh, was studying medicine, and I think in, in the UK he was an eye doctor. Yeah, and he was he was um, yeah, he was called back. He was he was going to go through a crash course to be groomed for to be president. When when Asad, when Hafez passed away in two thousand. Uh, Bashar al-Assad was too young to be president of Syria per Syria's constitution. The, the constitution said you had to be 40 years old. In a matter of five minutes, Syrian parliament changed that constitution from, from the age being, being required to be 44 to the age being required to be 34. Wow. Five, so wait, five minutes. That's, wait. A, that's what it took them. So from age 40 to 34? Yeah. That's oddly specific. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I I understand that there was a quote unquote referendum after Hafez al Assad died. Um, mm -hmm. What? How much do you know about that? Like, what what was it like? So I, I think I I have three referendums that were that went for Bashar. Okay. Um, you know there were there were no contenders. You know I I remember the the the, the one two thousand the one two thousand there were no contenders. It was a referendum, so it wasn't seen as an election. And who would dare who would dare uh, stand against him? Because like you there were absolute absolute loyalty towards him. Because there were like secret service agents like watching people vote. I've heard. Um, you know I, I guess uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't know how many Syrians were opposed to Bashar al-Assad. He was popular. Hmm. Um, he was popular prior to 2011. He wasn't as divisive as divisive as now. Um, what was uh, what made him popular at that point in time? Syrians, Syrians. Uh, I guess one of one thing that's on top of Syrians' list is their their security needs. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the the Middle East region is not it's not a peaceful and or friendly region. It's it's a tough region. Uh, we've had plenty of, of conflict entanglements with Israel. We, we had, there was the U.S. invasion was going on in, uh, um, in, in Iraq and, and the, the Bush administration was not friendly towards Assad. Um, so I, and, and then Assad's adventures in Lebanon, what he did to the Lebanese people, the, the assassination of the prime, of the Lebanese prime minister, um, it didn't de-escalate tensions and Syrians, they're, they're, primary concern was their immediate security. 
And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of them were convinced that Assad was going to be the one that was going to navigate Syria to, to better waters. Interesting. I guess, and I think this was, this was the supposed, uh, you know, compromise. You know, we'll give up a lot of our rights if you can maintain the security of the state. I think this was, this was the biggest, this was, I guess, the biggest agreement or compromise. And, you know, I'll tell you this, up to 2011, Syria was a really safe place. You know, especially when you're surrounded, when you're surrounded by what was happening in, what was happening in Iraq, what was happening in Lebanon, uh, bombs were going off there. There was, uh, jihadists were operating. Even, there were even bombs going happening in Jordan and, and the Israelis were always fighting the Palestinians and stuff. So we, we looked around the region and we saw there's, there's a lot of violence going on, lots of, lots of instability, but we were, I guess a lot of Syrians were thankful that, you know, bombings were not a norm in Syria from southern Lebanon to southern Lebanon, from southern one to southern Lebanon. Shootings were not, were not common. They were, they'd make headlines. People will talk about it. That reminds me of a quote from the a former president of Brazil, Lula da, Lula da Silva. I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something like, when people are scared, they seek protection f- from from monsters. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. What was life like in Syria under Bashar al-Assad in the early years of his reign, for lack of a better word? I know you've we've talked about the Damascus Spring in the past. Could you um, explain what that was a little bit. So, um, you know, I think a lot of Syrians, a lot of Syrians were convinced that, you know, Bashar al-Assad, given, given the fact that he was, you know, living in the UK, a very robust democracy, um, you know, he had an advanced education. He married a, uh, was it JP Morgan analyst? She, she worked one of the, to, for one of the biggest accounting firms and consulting firms in the UK. You know, he was, um, and, and I think just before, uh, Assad senior passed away, he was, he was also trying to encourage Syrians to use the internet. A lot of, pe- a lot of people were convinced this guy's, this guy's gonna be the reformer. This guy's gonna, he's gonna fix this country. He's gonna, we're gonna have security, but also we're gonna have prosperity. He's gonna take you to better uh, shores. And, you know, in South, I guess in the early 2000s, people like Sir- uh, Syrian intellectuals and, uh, you know, artists and they start forming, uh, I, I want to call them political salons. They were, you know, discussion groups where they could discuss the most, the most pressing matters of, of the day. Um, you know, if there were any demands, and they put them, I guess, elo- eloquently in a letter, not, 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 not a, probably not, not a very aggressive letter, not, nothing that, you know, uh, that makes you think of how aggressive the opposition is to the Assad regime nowadays. It was, it was very conciliatory. It was very like, uh, you know, civilly and politely asking the authorities. You know, some things need to change, get rid of the state of emergency and, uh, release political prisoners, allow more parties, uh, recognize some Kurdish rights, let's stop, uh, our transgressions in Lebanon. And it, it was, th- that's how they, that's, they were, I guess they were, they were trying, it was a good faith effort to engage the Syrian, Syrian leaders and, and rulers to reform the country. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened at this stage, but people say, I've heard, I've heard that there was the, the old guard versus the new guard. Um, you know, even, even though Assad was, was the new ruler of Syria, his advisors, they were called the old guard. And those guys were the guys that advised uh, Assad senior. And they're like, no, you need to go down on, on these, all these people with a, with a hand of steel. With an iron fist. With an iron fist. Yeah. And, and he did. Uh, most notably, uh, two Syrian MPs, and Syrian MPs are given immunity. So, like, unless, uh, unlike American Congress, a congressman or congresswoman, they're, you know, they're given immunity for prosecution so they can carry out their duties. And there are two MPs, Mamun al-Hamsi and Riyad Saif. They, they spoke out during, I think during a parliamentary session about how corrupt the um, telecommunications sector was because a lot of, there was essentially a monopoly by Assad's cousin. He, he had, he had too much power in that field and he got, I guess, preferential status in, in getting the contracts. So they spoke out, they spoke out against that and their immunities were dropped and they were prosecuted. One of them even had cancer and despite that, they still made his life home. Good God. So these were elected representatives who got snatched up by the government just because 
the the president didn't like what they were saying. They spoke out. They spoke out. Spoke out against the interests of the Assad of of the Assad family. And when I mean the Assad family, I mean the extended family, like the Makhlouf's. That's Rami Makhlouf, Assad's cousin, who was in charge of that whole corrupt monopoly, essentially. Yeah, Rami Makhlouf. He, I mean, there were two two telecom operators, uh, like you know, the Syrian equivalent of AT and T and T Mobile. There were two of them, and and this is how serious corruption worked. It, it didn't. It, Serious, serious corruption didn't work in the sense that people were, were stealing money from people. It was the denial of opportunities for other, for, 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 for competition. So, so the Syrian government would only recognize two telecom operators and conveniently they gave the two, the two, the two licenses to the, to Assad's cousin. That's how it worked out. So it sounds like a top-down favoritism. Yeah, and and a lot of Syria's, a lot of the elite that became elite because of the Assad regime, that's how they got ahead. Not by stealing anything, more or less, they're by by getting preferential treatment and access to these opportunities. Because this was at a time where um, Syria's economy was kind of transitioning from a somewhat socialist system to something more like a capitalist system, right? Yes, um, I guess that's one one thing uh, Assad had his side on. He wanted to transition Syria from a insulated socialist style economy. And he wanted to transition it into a into a, a market-led economy with, with, with some power uh, led by the government. But you know, I think in 2003, Syria applied for access uh, for membership with the with the World Trade Organization. Um, I think there's only like what around 17 states around the world that are not members of that organization, and Syria is one of them. And then and then he he, he started coming up with reform plans. They're called five year five year plans. They were supposed to, you know, shift attention to developing, uh, developing a new, a new market besides agriculture and oil. Uh, they, so they focused a lot on the cities. Um, they they came up with free trade free trade agreements. They they came up with um, with better with trade agreements with Turkey, and they had they were negotiating one with the European Union. Things to be honest, like as a, as someone that was from a city from Damascus, things were definitely getting better if you were from a city. They were definitely getting better. What kind of changes did you observe? Uh, oh, oh, definitely uh, several. So when I, uh, you know, one of the first things I, I, I noticed, um, beverages, soft drinks, for example, we we, we would we wouldn't have a, uh, we would make our own uh, sub I, I guess subpar quality, not so good. You know, they started getting the Coca Cola and the Pepsi Cola, um, you know, uh, Swiss chocolate, uh, Kit Kats. That, that stuff uh, that wasn't around uh, during Assad's day, and if it was at Assad Senior's day, and if it was, it was because it was smuggled in. And they started allowing the importation of those things. I remember Syria's first modern cinema. So they had old style cinemas, like probably things you, your grand your grandparents understood to be a cinema, with only certain movies, not even the latest movies, movies that had to be approved and they came in too late. And but no, like I remember in 2009, this very modern cinema. And it came with a sushi bar too, and a sushi um, bar. Yeah, it was it was a fancy cinema, and like oh and my god, ca- caramelized popcorn. That was that was new because like the only popcorn here in was salted popcorn, caramelized popcorn. Uh, we had a KFC open in two thousand, uh, I think thousand seven, and that was that was a that was a big moment. More access to the internet, you know. Uh, Facebook was blocked. Wikipedia was blocked. You know. Um, more private universities were opening, uh, in contrast to uh, pu- public universities. Uh, things are, yeah, I think things were changing, and people ho- were hoping this pace would 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 happen faster. Malls were opening in, in cities. I was witnessing it, and, I, and you know, uh, from 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 a personal standpoint, I this was something that was really good for me. It sounds like it was a fun time to grow up in Damascus. It definitely was. Going back to Assad real quick, um, do you think that he was when he got into power, do you think he really meant to reform the system, but he got pressured by hardliners, or do you think that's just kind of an excuse that his supporters throw out? My observation of him right now is I think this guy is junk with with power. You know, this guy this guy was treated like a god. You know, no one no one could. Uh, no, no one could oppose him. He was every everywhere he went to Syria. He was always welcomed with with admiration and love and uh, absolute loyalty. Uh, you know, verging verging on on the on the edge of deifying him, if not already deified him. It's a um, cult of personality. 
yeah, it's definitely a cult of personality. Definitely, we definitely have that. And I think, um, you know, I think this this factors into his decision making a lot. Um, and uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's if he's surrounded by yes men. I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if 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 no one dares to challenge him internally. Um, and it could be it could be a it could be a situation of you know he meant it, but he sleepwalked into something else. Um, but that's not what matters. It's just you know his intentions could have been good, but uh, we're not concerned with that as of now. No, whatever, whatever goodwill he may have had, he's definitely squandered it. Mm-hmm. I have heard rumors though that he might be kind of like a figurehead for some others in the regime. Like his brother Maher, I I doubt it. I doubt yeah. it. The guy, you know, um, the guy, the guy is. Uh, I I don't. I never get that sense because he's 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 doing a lot. Of, he spends a lot of time uh, prior prior to the uprising. He was he spent a good time in the public eye doing things, going around going around the streets of Syria. I guess the guy the guy also felt secure in Syria. No one. No one, uh, no one really captured. I would say most people liked him. Uh, that fact, like he, he didn't really have much of a security detail. He'd probably drive his own car. That's uh, true. Like I so, thought that was propaganda. He really did that. I, 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 I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. He. Uh, wow. You know, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but you know, he he made he made. You, I, 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 I wouldn't think that he, he would feel unsafe. Going out and meeting meeting with Syrians um, prior to the uprising, uh, it, it would not be inaccurate to say. I guess a lot of Syrians liked him, and they would they would have welcomed him. Would you say a, a majority of Syrians at that time liked him, or was it like a really vocal minority? I, I hard to say. You know, uh, I remember watching the two thousand thousand five. He got into entanglements because because of what was happening in Lebanon. People showed up in protests. South, same thing in Southern Seven when when the referendum was happening. There were there were parades in his favor. Um, I think his I would say at that point, part of Southern Lebanon, his lovers definitely outnumbered outnumbered uh, his haters. Hmm. Do you think that's still the case today? No, no, he's he's. He's he's definitely got his loyalists. I think, uh, no, if I were, if I were to, you know, entertain what, what Syrians are their opinion today is, uh, most Syrians I think would agree that most Syrians, even even loyalists, would agree that you know there has to be a change of leadership. They disagree on, on what terms. Yeah. Uh, they probably understand that he's a very defensive figure and that his his rule has not. Has have not been good Syria. There is a small, tiny minority I had like that's absolutely loyal, but I, but I think even with most people that identify with the loyal, the loyalist camp, I think they would be a bit more rational and say we we could see, we we would we could see him going, but on 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 certain terms. What would you say was the difference between life under Hafez al Assad and life under Bashar al Assad, especially like? Um, uh, up until 2011. So, you know, access access to the global economy, like you know, I I witnessed I witnessed the change that was happening under under uh, Bashar, like visibly. Um, you know, getting the internet, getting the internet, um, uh, more 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 foreign products into the country. Uh, you know the end, the end of, of state state exclusive control over education, some private education here and there, but still with lots of control. But it was it was the start of something. Um, and I guess you know th- these were when people talk about reforms. I guess these were at least some of the economic and, and I stress on this economic reforms that were happening. Syria was integrating. Assad Junior was trying to integrate Syria into the global economy. Without, without also running a, a parallel political reform process. He was working on the economic front, but he, he did not want to touch the political front. When I, 
uh, I guess Asa Junior really slipped. Like you know, he should have. Uh, that I think this was as early as two thousand three, where you know, if you want you want to fix this country in terms of its economy, you also got to do some work on the political front. But you know, they left that for nothing. As as Syria transitioned from socialism to capitalism. Um, would you say that life got better for the average Syrian or did life get harder? Um, did things get more equal or did economic inequality get worse? Depends. Uh, you know, um, like I said, if if you work in the service industry, you're an accountant, uh, you're an attorney, you're uh, a business person, uh, a merchant, you know, most likely things were going to get better for you. Most likely, you know, banks, you know, private banks were starting, were starting off. You could like take a, you could take a loan, start your own business. These are insur- insurance was becoming a thing. The, um, you know, the, the, the start of the finance economy, you know, the whole, uh, you know, because before then you couldn't take a loan from a bank. The loans, the loans for purposes of business did not really exist. Um, it was good. It was like, it was, it was like, it was starting, it was kickstarting an economy good for, for business creation. Um, now, 25% of Syria's GDP comes from agriculture. Another 25, 30% comes from natural resources like oil and phosphates. Or actually, sorry, that's just oil. There's, there's even phosphates. So the majority of, of, of Syria's economy doesn't come from like industry or, or services. It comes from Natural resources and agriculture. Two, two, uh, aspects that are very vulnerable to global fluctuations and, 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 um, environmental factors. Uh, and I'll say even, even though it's probably getting better for the, for the, ur- for the urban parts of the country, when the, when the majority of your income comes from agriculture and you're experiencing a drought, that's not good. When oil prices go down and a, and a good majority of your, your GDP comes from oil, that's not good. And I guess this is, uh, this is when things started going bad for, um, a lot of people involved in those industries. They started leaving the areas that were affected by the droughts and they, and going to these satellite cities around the major urban areas, like, like Huta in, in Damascus or some areas around Hobbs. That's where they would go. And that's, that's the, those are the areas that held the uprising up. Would it be unfair to describe these areas as, at the risk of sounding impolite, slums or ghettos? It's, it seems like it's spot on. They were informal, informal uh, living areas. So, you know, they would, they would, it, it, so slums, you would think like corrugated metal, maybe some tents. No, but these were brick houses. People would build brick houses, unauthorized Unregulated brick houses, so like no, not really accounting for like let's say safe safe standards or regulations. They built them there. That sounds and, like a slum. Yeah, and the gov- the government, you know, I guess they could they didn't really have the heart to like you know these, they, they they didn't start an active policy of discouraging these people. They they just let them do do it, and uh, you know they they ignored the problem. I guess. I remember you once said that at a time when Syria had a really large. Um, population of young people, it was experiencing a lot of unemployment as well. Yeah. And this was like, when, when did that start? Was it like 2009, 2010? So, I guess, you know, you, you could, I could say since like the 19, I don't know, 1980s or 1960s, Syria's economy was doubling every 20 years. We had a, we had a very high fertility rate, I think 47, 47, uh, People per woman, so uh, every like you know every single couple was producing some kids, and that's because we had a socialist system of government that gave back then probably a ger- generous subsidies to families. You know how much diesel oil you get, how much food you get, and so these people, I guess, were kind of incentivized. And uh, among other factors, among other factors, they got they got plenty of kids, and there was no national strategy to it. To realize that you know, there's this is not sustainable. It's especially not sustainable if you have a social system of government. And I guess around two by around 2011, 55 percent of the Syrian population was under the age of 25. And what that means is the majority of the population is not is not the workforce. And the workforce now has to pay taxes that have 
to subsidize the socialist uh, policies of the government. And despite them being a minority, in contrast to the non-working part, so and like for example, how how large was your family? How many how many siblings do you have? I have I have three three siblings. Um, but but I'll say this I'll say this. There's and I and I mentioned earlier. There's other factors that take into account the the, the fertility rates of women, like and economic status, economic status. Uh, you know, the woman's access to opportunity. Uh, recognition of her rights, uh, you know, how empowered is she in her household? Does her, is the, the, does she have to show absolute loyalty towards her husband? Uh, there, there, there are these factors that, cause otherwise, otherwise in, in a traditional marriage sense, you know, a husband, a husband is the one that decides how many children he has and a woman just has to be obedient. But if a woman is empowered in terms of financially and even, even in terms of the relationship, She's empowered to say, I don't want to have, I don't want my body to go through seven pregnancies. You get two kids and that's it. This is one, this, these are some of the factors that, that, that go into account. This is a very nuanced situation. It's, um, it's, it's very, the way that you describe it, it sounds very different than how, um, Americans or other Westerners oftentimes talk about gender re- relations in the Middle East. But, but then again, Syria is a, a unique country in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote my thesis on this. What was going on in the immediate build-up to 2011? What, what was going on? What was going on in Syria in 2010, for example, that you would say contributed to what happened the the year after? You know, as someone like in an urban area, you have plenty of reasons to be optimistic and think things the country was going better. People were investing in Damascus. I guess one of Syria's first high-rise was was planned to start construction. Some malls were opening up. The first American-style diner opened up in Damascus in Southern and uh, oh, I think Southern. Oh man! Yeah, the first American-style diner, and uh, you know, cinemas were opening up. Cinemas that served caramelized popcorn, and you know, like and, and new movies. You know, internet services were getting better. Credit cards and ATMs were becoming a thing. The food scene got better. Like I, I mentioned, I mentioned like you know the American style diner, but like you know burger, burger places, sushi places were opening up. What else, what else was happening? Uh, you know, concerts, concerts were starting to happen. Like uh, brands, like uh, clothing brands, were starting to open up. Like it was, if you were uh, let's say a middle class Syrian in in, an, in a in a city, you had plenty of reasons to be. Uh, optimistic um how how uh, much of the population would you say fit into that economic class versus say people living in poverty for example it's hard to say i i, I wish I could, I could tell you um i will tell you this like you know because a, a lot of the way i describe things is off my personal experiences obviously i come from a family that was able to add you know to to you know these rest i, I talk about restaurants because i, I could have afford them I don't know if it, I can't tell you if these restaurants meant anything to to anyone else. How much they meant to other other segments of the Syrian population, um, especially like I, I'm talking about, like say like American style diners. I feel I feel like it's it's it comes from a place of privilege. Yeah, to say to say like yeah, these these were things that I valued. Uh, Me being honest, dude. That's yeah. That's all we ask. Um, and I mean, it's great that you recognize that. A lot of people, I know what it's like to grow up in an area where everybody's making a lot of money and they lose touch with how other people are living. They come to think that their their lifestyle is the norm when it really yeah. isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like, so like the way that you were living in a, in a really uh, prosperous part of Damascus, it was... I get the sense it was pretty different than the way somebody would have lived in a place like uh, uh, Duma or Modamia or yeah, um, yeah. or Guta, Huta. I suck at pronouncing words. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm telling you, this was uh, this one of the biggest divides the divides in the country: urban versus rural. People talk about sectarian, but the urban versus rural divide is very real. I've heard that um, in 2011, the first areas that saw violence were primarily rural areas. You know, uh, to a big extent, true. Uh, 
that that is like you know it's you know it's I, I've I've only been there once, passed by, but it's it is an agricultural hub of Syria. So is it? I, I wish I got to see more more of Syria. But I've been I've been to the uh obviously I've been to Damascus. I've been to the I've been to the to the Israeli border. Um, to, to, there are some resort towns around Damascus where the the, Dem- the Damascenes go for weekends for fun. Those areas are nice. Um, Zabadani and Blue they're called. They're 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 very pretty, picturesque. I've been to Homs, uh, Tortus, Latakia, and Aleppo. You know, Syria's coast is gorgeous. It's on the Mediterranean. Great, great beaches, great cuisine. Um, not not as developed as Damascus, naturally. I mean, Damascus is the capital city, but you know, um, I would say Latakia had like some more liberal parts than Damascus. Uh, there there were some some things were going on there. Aleppo. I mean, I I had a very brief uh, trip to Aleppo. It's it's also a nice city. But I guess you know the focus. I guess you, 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 I could definitely tell you the focus of, of Assad Junior's uh, rule was on was on cities, and most no, most notably was uh, Damascus. Yeah, I might be off base here, but whenever I read about Aleppo prior to 2012, it, it seems to me like that was almost like the New York City of Syria. People, people tell me it's like I haven't seen any any statistics, but they tell me it's the the industrial and, and economic hub of Syria. But you know that, that's just a thing they say. I don't. I, I have. I haven't seen any statistics or or hard numbers done. So yeah, de- December uh, tw- uh, two thousand and ten. You know everything's happening in Tunisia and then Egypt, and people are watching. People. I, I remember it was making headline news everywhere. P- people were glued to their TVs. The social media. People were talking about it. They were in support of these uprisings. And, you know, it was, and when it started becoming a domino effect, okay, it's happening, it's happening in Tunisia, it's happening in Libya, it's happening in Egypt. Who's next? Who's next? And most, most Syrians were, by the way, were, were in support of these uprisings. Uh, even, I think even, even, uh, I think even the official Syrian government, you know, while wary of it, you know, they, I think they were thinking this could be a good thing, especially, let's say, the, the Mubarak regime. They yeah. Not like him. Um, and you know, like at, at one point, like I think Syrians decided, like, okay, so it's it's obviously there's a trend here. It's all these Middle Eastern countries are we next? And in, I remember the first time I was exposed to something was in late January. I saw this was my first exposure to anti-Assad sentiment, and I see I see someone created a Facebook group talking about their grievances on the Assad regime, and uh, and, and calling for a protest on February second. Immediately, immediately, Syrians are are. It, it was it was a very scary period. People people were not stating with their positions, but the, but the loyalists were the loyalists were, were already they, they were preemptively like taking these positions, like vouching vouching for Assad. The social media was filled with it. Uh, no 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 demonstrations or marches marches just yet. But I remember I remember February second was 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 planned, and I went there. And I, it was supposed to start at Syrian Parliament. I saw Syrian Parliament surrounded by all these intelligence agents. I made the wise decision to go home. Yeah. Uh, and I, and to be honest, and I genuinely thought that was the end of it. I thought that was that's all. That's what we could do. We tried. This was the result. No one was around besides the intelligence agents. I'm not. I'm going home. And that night, I, I genuinely thought that was the end of the. Of anything. Nothing's going to happen in Syria. Everything's going to go on as normal. You know, then we had, there was a small incident where a policeman in, in, in this old part of Damascus, like he wronged someone, like a civilian. People start gathering, they start chanting something like, "We don't, we don't want to be subject to any, to any humiliation." And at that point, the Syrian interior minister showed up. He comes in, he rolls into his car. There's a video. It's pretty funny. And you know, people, people like you know, they recognize, oh, this guy came and he showed up. That means he cares about us. And then he says something that's pretty funny. He tells them. You guys should disperse right now. This is this is a anti, this is an anti-regime demonstration, and people at that point start start pleading, pleading with him. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's pretty funny to watch. Wow. People, yeah, people were shocked by. It. They, they didn't. They didn't think that that's how it would be interpreted. But you know, I, and, and despite this incident, I thought it was funny. But looking, looking at the, and by the way, some people like after after the minister, minister left, they started chanting pro Assad chants. And I thought, and I thought, okay, it was an interesting incident, but that was the end of it. I, I, I started my second semester of undergrad 
and and I thought life would go back to normal. You know, I'm 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 in my I'm doing my studies one day. It's 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 late evening. I see Al Jazeera TV, and speaking about these protests in Dara, I look at the protests. They're chanting these very iconic Arabic chants that people want to downfall the regime. Or sorry, they're they're chanting Allah Suri Hariya Bas. They're reclaiming another chant that's Allah Suri Bashar Bas. God Syria and Assad only. And instead of that, they were saying God Syria and freedom only. This shocked me, and the crowd was was, was a sizable crowd in Dara. I look, I could not believe it. I could not believe it. Um, I was in shock, and that was uh. That was my first learning of the Syrian uprising, seeing that. So this was March 2011? This was March. And yeah, and no one knew the details back then. They didn't know how did this, well, how did this start? You know, the, the, the story of, of the school children that, you know, they drew graffiti on a school saying, you're an ex-doctor, referring to Assad. Um, that, that didn't come out yet. People were like, we talk, we wanted to know what was happening. And, uh, and and I guess you know as a crisis response, Assad then like th- that story with the with the children, um, locking them up and then torturing them and then humiliating their family members. That's just like very poor crisis response management. It's uh, that's about as bad as it gets. Yeah, that's about that's about as it gets, and that's a you know. If he if he had taken his cousin and put him some through some sham political judicial process where he would have I don't know locked him up for a year or two and then let him out let him out on some sort of uh, you know uh, plea deal you know that could that could have been the end of it I I, think, I generally think at that point Syrians were still over like mostly loyal towards Assad like at the very least they shouldn't have sent back the mutilated bodies of those kids to their families and, and if so you know if it's that bad. And you know what? Punish them publicly, punish the perpetrators publicly, and you know what? Offer something to the family. But, but no, no. Yeah. It got to the point where the family went to ask for, wanted to, went to ask for some of the kids, and he tells them, you know, bring your wives, I'll, I'll make more kids for you. And so who said that exactly? I said his cousin. He's one of his cousins. I forget what his name was. I think, I think, I think his name was Aldif Najib. And later on, the parents made a televised appearance with President Assad. Well, yeah. So uh, you know, there was you know this was you know after uh, you know this was after the fire spread. Mm. The fire, the fire had spread, and you know, and we don't know how much, how much, con- how much uh, genuine choice these people had to say. Like, yeah, could they say no? Could could you say no? I don't know. But you Probably know, Assad not. started going on this. You know, Assad wanted to show that you know he he had a carrot and a stick, and he showed the carrot. He'll come up with some reforms, but then he also accused some of the demonstrators of being foreign agents and 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 uh and uh, what's called uh yeah foreign agents that were coming to start trouble so um that's what every authoritarian state calls dissidents yeah yeah um and then he started running these you know these public access meetings you get all these odd lots of people you know representative of groups that are that could have been like opposed to Assad like to Assad he'd sit them bring them to his palace Sit them down. What's your issue? Describe them. And you know, I think I think some of them back then some in the court should tell him. I think some of I, I've heard stories where some people come to some of the court that says you should you should find a way to leave power. They tried to put it in a civil way, nothing too aggressive. But wow, no, it wasn't recorded. It wasn't recorded. None of these were record, recorded. So I, I'm relying here on word of mouth. I said definitely wanted to maintain the the image of a reformer that things were going to happen. He was saying things, and then his 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 loyalists, his agents, his Shabiha, were doing other things: mass arrests, torture, no space, absolute no space given for any any form of opposition. Opposition, and if there was an opposition, it was pretty funny. It was called the tolerated opposition. Can you quickly describe who the Shabiha were? So yeah, and and, and this is I think this, the Shabiha it, it, to re, to understand to understand uh, how how lawless Syria is, it's the Shabiha that really make it lawless. It's these people, they're given broad powers under, you know, not even under the law, but, you know, people just assume, assume they're acting in the best interests of the state, of the country, in national security, that, you know, they're, they're not questioned. Uh, courts will not question their, their actions, um, the public won't question their actions, and Initially, it started off as these these people that had connections to uh, powerful members of Syria's intelligence, and they would, you know, they'd use leverage those connections to make a fortune by smuggling things like cigarettes, uh, alcohol, vice, 
you know, so they, there was yeah. that thug, that they had that thug, they had the thug characteristics. Weren't they, they also, also had, I'm sorry to interrupt, weren't they also like smuggling drugs out of the Baca Valley and other regions? Yeah, so, so yeah. yeah. Um, so these people, they, they had, they had a good relationship with serious intelligence agents. Wow. And you know, and, and I'm guessing, and I'm guessing, you know, with this uprising, serious, serious intelligence agencies, um, they were stressed. There was a pot, this was an unprecedented popular uprising. You know, there, there's lots, there's a lot of intelligence agencies and, and, and people that work for them, but not enough to deal with all these, all these protests. And yeah. so they turned to their, their partners, these people that, you know, these, these smugglers, these lost people that, you know, that could, you know, do call all kinds of, um, illicit activities because they had a relationship with the intelligence agencies and they're like, you know what, you guys have some muscle, come help us. So, so hypothetically, if somebody were to, uh, buy weed in Damascus, for example, you're basically buying it from the government. <laughs> Good way to describe it, yeah. In uh, 2011, you were in college. Where were you going to college? In the American University of Beirut. Okay. How did so, you go from uh, Damascus to Beirut? What was that transition like? You know, Be- Beirut, um, it's it's a two to three hour drive from Damascus. Um, so, you know, it, it, pl- plenty of times I, I, I go with my family from Damascus to Beirut for a day. You know, Beirut was essentially for the Damascus, the, the Damascus elite, the people that could afford it was, was the, was the, the nearby, the nearby access to the international markets. Uh, prior to all these malls, all opening these restaurants, these shopping centers, you know, you wanted to have your American style diners to watch these old new, new movies to buy new clothes. You need to go to Beirut. That's how. That's how it was. Interesting. That's, Beirut was plugged into the global economy. Uh, they had a huge a, a Lebanese diaspora, and that made Beirut a very international destination. But relative to Damascus, hmm. um, more there were there were more cuisines over there, uh, more things to do. It had a. I, I, I guess some parts of, of of Beirut are they they got a party atmosphere. They're not, it's not as conservative as Damascus. Um, so it was, you know, relative to the region, it's the party city. Oh, yeah. Those and famous you know, Beirut nightclubs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, being an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old. Oh, it's, man. It's, it's where you want to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, and Beirut's like right on the coastline, right? Mm-hmm, it is, Yes. So you went from living in this um, oasis in the desert, in the mountains, to being almost on the beach. Yeah, I was. Yeah, that, that's how it was. Um, but regardless, it was it was a it was a two to three hour drive, and it was it was just as convenient. I finished. I don't remember. I, I planned my semester in the sense I'd, I'd spent three days three days in Beirut, uh, four days in Damascus, um, mm. and all it took me was was uh, I, I I could get a taxi. Ranging from, um, and I'm not kidding here. A taxi. Um, a taxi between 16, 16 to forty dollars to drive me from my house in Damascus to to Beirut and backwards. Oh my God! I that that wow. Yeah, that's that's how much it cost. So it was it was a very easy. Uh, it was very easy to live and work in both cities. One one cab ride from one national capital to another. Yeah. How how long was that drive? Two to three hours, depending on traffic, depending on on like how many people were at the border, how how, how nice the border agents were. Wow. But, uh, and and I tell you this, this is, this is this is pretty funny. So I remember when growing up in the when before I moved to Beirut and like going going to going to Lebanon and getting our exposure to to the to the outer world out of Syria's insulated socialist system of government. One of one of the first thing you see once you enter Lebanon is that there's a McDonald's. Oh, and, and, and you know what? Let's, McDonald's is like iconic of the global market, especially of like the, the whole consumerism capitalist yeah. uh, form. And our first thought was always was probably always McDonald's. <laughs> so so Damascus has KFC, but not McDonald's. It got KFC pretty late. 
Okay. And, and you know, and, by, and and that KFC, by the way, like it was operating under under a lot of restrictions. It wasn't it wasn't like the KFC tier. Like they so they they could never they could never market Colonel Sanders for some reason. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. No, there were all kinds of restrictions on what they could cancel and how they could market themselves. Oh. And like you ask them, you ask them, what does KFC stand for? And I think there was like some, some something in in the operating agreement that said they that, that made them say they can't they can't call themselves Kentucky Fried Chicken. They could just call themselves KFC. I see. And I know I know it was it was definitely a franchise because it tasted damn damn near good damn like near as, as the actual thing like here in the states. Wow. But it's it's the actual thing. But something was off in the operate, operating agreements. Hmm. So my next question kind of ties us back to what we were talking about, about um, the Syrian government's involvement um, in the region as a whole. I know that Hezbollah is an active political party in Lebanon, and they also have a close relationship with the Syrian government. H- have you, like, uh, did you ever see those people in Beirut? Yes. Um it's Hezbollah is, is a very prevalent party in, in Beirut. Um, supporters, armed or not armed. Uh, I went to I went to the American University of Beirut. They had a presence there. Um, they would they would make their presence known. Uh, you know, and this was like a synchronized uh, dress. I have reason to believe some of some of the students that were in the American University of Beirut became moved on to become fighters in Syria. You know, they they parade their power around the city. It was it, it became like you know it was like bullying. Yeah. Hezbollah Hezbollah is, is a very powerful party that that can bully the Lebanese government if they if they choose to. During the Lebanese civil war, basically every political party had a armed uh, wing attached to it, but Hezbollah was the only one that was allowed to keep theirs. When the war ended, because nobody could yeah. make him get rid of it. Yeah, that and the argument was that they were uh, gonna. They had reasons to believe that they were they were gonna get uh, fight Israel again. So they thought we wanted yeah. these weapons. Because like Israel still occupied a, a significant chunk of Lebanon when the war when the yeah. Lebanese civil war ended, and even after the Israelis pulled out, I mean Hezbollah they kind of styled themselves as like. Well, I mean, let me ask you since since you met these people, were they? Did they want to like specifically liberate Shia Muslims, or was it like a defend Islam altogether kind of thing? You know, d- d- depend- depending on what was the more most convenient discourse at that time, they'd say it's, oh. it, it, it was what's what's the convenient discourse of of, of you know. Uh, I have very I have a very little reason to believe that they actually care about you know the whole the whole Muslim community. Um, and, and you know what? Like it, it makes sense. Like people put their interests first. So yeah. Um, I think I think I, I believe Hezbollah and, and Iran. You know, they employ the whole you know Islamic Islamic vanguard thing as a way to get popularity from like other Muslim countries. But you know, I think uh, what they did in Syria really exposed them for what they are. Definitely. <clears throat> so in 2011, you're you're going back and forth from Damascus to Beirut, and then these. And then the protests start happening. Um, when 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 did you get involved in in this? So I remember living living in Beirut. It was, I was still scared. March scared. April still scared. My parents started telling me, "Sorry, asking to stay in Beirut." But you know, and like I genuinely thought, like you could get killed. You could you genuinely people you were getting really killed. Get the first the first person within within my within my network. I barely knew this person, but this guy this guy got killed. And I was like, okay, this is not something you want to mess with. Uh, it's like, if you decide to go to a protest, you have to recognize that you could get killed, or even worse, even worse, detained, tortured, and then killed. And, and then probably killed. And you don't even know when they'll kill you. I was scared for a while. I was scared. And I, even, I didn't even know where to start. Where were these protests gather? I, I'm not a really pious person, so I don't go to mosque. So I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know even know where to start. But, you know, my, my first protest, um, August 1st, 2011, uh, Midan neighborhood, southern Damascus. I, I go, I go. It, it's Ramadan. I, I go, I go to mosque with my father. And right after, right after, you know, prayers. Uh, you know, it's and that was the first time I saw protests. You know, people just barely finished their prayers. They, they started chanting, and you know, I, I immediately found myself chanting with them. And I'll tell you this: I, I, it's, it was one of the most memorable dates in, in my life. Uh, this might sound very, very cheesy. 
very cheesy, but it really felt like a second birth. The first time, first time, this huge burden that's on my back that you could always, you could never, never object to. You could never object to. And, you know, for, for 19 years of my life. And this was the first time I could say, no, enough. You had the option to stay out and you chose to, to get involved. Yeah. Dude, I gotta tell you, I don't think I would have been that brave. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll tell you, like, if, if, like, looking back, I, I did some crazy things. I don't know, like, uh, I, I, that was, that was, that was one of the more safer things I did. I remember, like, I, I tried going on this campaign and I'd, I'd find Assad propaganda, uh, in my neighborhood and I'd take it and tear it down. And I, and when I told my father about this, he got really angry because that could have been a death sentence. Yeah, no doubt, man. Do do you think that that in that um experience you had with the other people in the mosque, do you think the fact that you saw them doing this first and you saw other people doing it, did that play a role in your decision making? Yeah, because to be honest, I, I, to be honest, I would not have been brave enough to start something on my own. Hell no. I see. Courage is contagious, but someone has, has to start it, and it was not going to be me. <laughs> yeah, it would not have been most people. Yeah, yeah, but it was. It was like you know, it, it, you're always thinking it was going to be very scary. Like I remember, uh, and, and just to make you understand how how uh, you know the me- mental and emotional process was happening, you're, you're you've been always been scared. You're always you're constantly you're worrying about your safety. But there's a there's elation and there's excitement when when. When you start chanting, when your first exposure to something, to shutting off this burden, this, it, it, it felt, it really felt like I was breaking out of like a cocoon or something. Like, it was, it was a really good moment. First time you say you object to something that you just couldn't. And throughout the year, lots of people, I'm pretty sure, I, I've heard a lot, several Syrians describe the experience similarly to the way you just did. It, there were lots of people, primarily young people, who felt that weight being lifted off of them. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why I told you it's going to be cheesy because, like, now you ask, you ask me, Syria, what was your first post like?" And this is <laughs> this is the form answer. Yeah, it it, it, it kind of gets boring. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not cheesy; it's the truth. It's like it's it's what you felt, and it's what thousands of other, of other people felt. Yeah, yeah, all over the country. Yeah. In the next episode, Mamoun describes what it was like to participate in Syria's revolution and how it became a civil war. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and thank you, Mamoun Mahaini, for sharing your story with us. Man on the run How far can he go?